you. Thank you all very much. Happy to be here with you and appreciate the invitation to speak at this wonderful conference. Uh, although, when I reflected on this, preparing this talk, I thought maybe it's kind of ironic that I'm here. Here it's the center of learning, renowned for its fidelity to the teachings of the church. And uh, the conference the theme is, you know, restoring the divine plan for the human person in marriage. Ironic because back in my home city of San Francisco, much ado is being made and much celebration is taking place to mark the 50th anniversary of the so-called Summer of Love, 50 years ago this summer. So if you're my age or older, you'll remember you didn't really have to be there to know what it was like because the images were so vivid. and They still are even 50 years later. Crowds of young people in color, colorful clothing dancing to the strains of mellow music in Golden Gate Park. People immersing themselves with reckless abandon into all kinds of immediately gratifying pleasures with no regard for the consequences. That so-called summer of love attracted a wide range of people of various ages, teenagers and college students drawn by their peers, uh, middle-class vacationers, even parting military personnel from bases within driving distance. Tate-Ashbury could not accommodate this influx of people, and the neighborhood scene quickly deteriorated with overcrowding. Homelessness, hunger, drug problems, and crime, all afflicting the neighborhood. All of what are really the usual consequences of unfettered indulgence in drugs, sex, and rock and roll. The phenomenon we know as the 60s was really about a lot of things, and some of them actually are values that we all accept and cherish to this day. Nonviolence, closeness to nature, a desire to break down artificial barriers and build up unity in the human family. It was, after all, the decade in which the civil rights movement reached its zenith, culminating in the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. But we also know that uh, for many, uh, 1967 was a brief summer of love, followed by a long winter of drug addiction, family disintegration, and despair. One very sad recollection of the aftermath of the summer of love was shared by a woman still living in the Haight-Ashbury district 20 years later, who said, they were expecting a city of love and found a city like any other, and a lot of them ended up being prostitutes. Prostitutes, that is, in order to support their drug habit. Those years were marked by many ironies, ironies which perplex me to this day. For example, yes, 1964 was an historical breakthrough for the civil rights of, of African Americans, but the following year, the Assistant Secretary of Labor, Labor and later multi-term senator from New York, Sociologist Daniel Patrick Moynihan issued his famous report, The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, better known as simply the Moynihan Report. The report identified and analyzed the deep roots of black poverty in the United States. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. His conclusion, the high rate of fatherless families, 25% at the time, which seemed alarming then, would greatly hinder progress of blacks toward economic and political equality. And there is no substitute for that. In fact, Moynihan, who favored government programs to assist the poor, stated in the report, the steady expansion of this welfare program as of public assistance programs in general 
can be taken as a steady disintegration of the Negro family structure over the past generation in the United States. So there's one irony. You think the society would recognize this and do everything possible to reverse this trend in the African-American community and prevent it from growing to other sectors of society. Instead, what happened? Right at the moment that African-Americans finally gained equality in the law, social conditions changed such that behaviors that c contribute to and exacer exacerbate the problem became accepted and even expected thus keeping too many black families trapped in poverty. What many saw as a racially charged issue in 1964 has since spread throughout American society across ethnic groups. In 2019, 29% of births to white non-Hispanic mothers were outside of marriage, as were 53% to Hispanic mothers and 70% of births to black mothers. If we add divorce rates to this mix, we see that the fraying of our family ties has touched virtually every community in America. And the ironies continue. Some of the more well-seasoned citizens here may remember as I the famous Murphy Brown line of them Vice President Dan Quayle. Remember that? Uh, I was, my memory is refreshed when I was reading up on this. It was a speech he gave in 1992 to the Commonwealth Club of, of all places, my own town of San Francisco. And he took a swipe at the popular TV character, saying that she was, quote, mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice, unquote. This, of course, as many of you will recall, caused a huge storm of controversy, and he took a lot of heat for it. And yet, a year later, an article was published in the Atlantic Magazine, this is April of 1993, authored by Barbara Defoe Whitehead with the bold title, Dan Quayle was right. I'm sure many of you remember that too, but to give you a gist of the content of the article, the praises under the heading stated the following. The social science evidence is in. Though it may benefit the adults involved, the dissolution of intact two-parent families is harmful to large numbers of children. Moreover, the author argues, family diversity in the form of increasing numbers of single-parent and step-parent families does not strengthen the social fabric, but rather dramatically weakens and undermines society. And even Candace Bergen herself, who played Murphy Brown, said in an article published by the Associated Press 10 years later, Vice President Quayle's speech was a perfectly intelligent speech about fathers not being dispensable, and nobody, nobody agreed with that more than I did. That article by Defoe Whitehead, though, is just one small drop in the very large bucket of social science data collected ever since the Moynihan Report, confirming his analysis and linking so many grave social ills, such as poverty, crime, incarceration, school dropout rates, and youth violence with family breakdown, and especially fatherless families. As just one example, a couple of years ago, the book Do Fathers Matter was published with the subtitle, What Science is Telling Us About the Parent We've Overlooked. In it, author Paul Rayburn points out, there is no example of a human society in which fathers do not help raise the children, and that for most of human history, fathers were responsible for protecting their children and for teaching them the things they needed to know to survive and prosper. 
He explores many of the new experiments that have been completed on animals that appear to shed light on unique contributions of fathers on children. A study from David Popino at Rutgers University cited in the book says that the evidence is overwhelming that a family of mother and father is better for the child than one parent. And in fact, Senator Moynihan himself in an interview with PBS in 2001 said with what sounds at least to me anyway like a tone of almost fatalistic resignation, the following. My view is we had stumbled onto a major social change in the circumstances of postmodern society. It was not long ago in this past century that an anthropologist working in London postulated what he called the first rule of anthropology, that in all known societies, all male children have an acknowledged male parent. That's what we found out everywhere. And well, maybe it's not true anymore. Human societies change. But the data keeps piling up. And in fact, I've been actually been out in the area here a few days. And the day before yesterday, I got um, Dr. O'Donnell's partial indulgence by opening up the Washington Post and reading it uh, by special concession of Pope Francis, of course. <laughs> and I found this op-ed by George Will, the sequence uh, to success. He's stating basically what another study I came across and reading up on this about 10, 15 years ago. The formula for people staying out of poverty is graduate from high school, get a job, marry, and then have children. He cites a study here that was done on older millennials who followed that sequence. He says only 3% who followed that sequence are poor. And uh, surprisingly enough, he points out what the problem is. This is from a study done by Brad Wilcox, which he calls, he refers to as the soulmate model of marriage. That is, it's an adult-focused institution for the good of the adults involved rather than a uh, man and a woman coming together to form a family with the emphasis in, on the child. I believe that all of this is emblematic of the, what I would call societal schizophrenia that has marked our nation and much of the rest of the world too, regarding the basic idea of marriage and the family. We bemoan so many social ills, especially poverty, which we know from broad, deep, and consistent scientific data, not to mention common sense, which yes, perhaps is not so common anymore, but we know it's caused in large part by fatherlessness while at the same time celebrating and enshrining in the popular culture a distorted notion of freedom with corresponding behaviors that destroy the integrity of marriage and the family, the very thing necessary to cure and prevent those social ills in the first place. That is precisely the purpose of marriage. Or as someone more studied than I on this subject, I, I heard once put it, when a baby is born, the mother is sure to be somewhere nearby. <laughs> There's no guarantee, though, that the father will be. So society needs a cultural mechanism that attaches fathers to their children and to the woman with whom they brought those children into the world. That cultural mechanism is marriage. It's the only one there is. There simply isn't any other. It is not a Catholic thing, then, to say that children need a father as well as a mother in order to have the optimal environment for their own flourishing. On the contrary, it is a universal principle that societies that don't manage the procreative implications of the sexual act don't last for very long. So that's the bad news. But now compare all of this to Pope Francis's opening words in his post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia. 
The opening words, the joy of love experienced by families is also the joy of the church. What is most noteworthy here is where he does not begin with the experiences and challenges of families today. That is dealt with in the second chapter. But the Holy Father begins by asking how God envisions the family. Only then does he examine contemporary experience and move on to a specifically Christian understanding of marriage and family life. This sort of topics is extremely important because it forthrightly affirms our conviction that there is a divine plan for marriage and family. The joy of love. That is really what is at the root of all of the irony and confusion and social schizophrenia to which I referred a moment ago. It is simply the meaning of the word love. That word evokes complex realities, and it is necessary to exercise careful discernment. We might say of the watchword of the 60s, free love, what Chesterton said about birth control, it is neither. If by free love we mean intimacy without commitment, that is certainly not love except in the poisonous self-love that uses another person for one's own gratification, nor is it in fact free. Rather, its price has been extremely high, both for society and for countless individuals. There is another sense, though, in which free love can be profoundly real and deeply Catholic. It is the freedom manifested in God who created everything in order to share his divine goodness and who made us in his image and likeness to enter into communion of love with him. It is the freedom of unconditional divine love that sustains us in existence, the love of a heavenly father who sends his reign on the just and on the unjust alike. It is the freedom manifested in Jesus Christ who showed the depth of his love by freely laying down his life on the cross. Free love that is self-giving and sacrificial is divine. And it is that kind of love that is at the heart of God's divine plan for marriage and the family. Love put into action is what we call charity. On this point, Pope Benedict said in his encyclical, God is Love, remember that title was Deus Caritas Est, charity cannot be used as a means of engaging in what is nowadays considered proselytism. Love is free. It is not practiced as a way of achieving other ends. Love is free. So there you have it. Even Pope Benedict is encouraging us to engage in free love. <laughs> that is because, understood in this Catholic sense, free love is nothing other than God's plan for our own human flourishing. Let us then go back to Pope Francis's starting point in Amoris Laetitia. I would like to summarize the principal truths he proclaims in that foundational first chapter. He begins paragraph 10 by stating, the majestic early chapters of Genesis present the human couple in its deepest reality. Those first pages of the Bible make a number of very clear statements. He then proceeds to enumerate what those clear statements are. That God created the man in, in his own image and likeness, male and female, and that uh, the image of God here refers to the couple, male and female. And then that the couple that loves and begets life is a true living icon capable of revealing God, the creator, and the savior. And that the family life of father, mother, and children become an icon of the Trinity. He says the triune God is a communion of love and the family is its living reflection. Then he says that in this communion of love, the encounter between man and woman, which uh, relieves human solitude, gives rise to new birth and to the family. 
and that the marital union is not just sexual and corporal, but it also is, involves the voluntary self-giving of the spouses in love. They truly become one flesh. And so the children share not only genetically, but also spiritually in the flesh of both parents. So he says, if the parents are in some sense the foundations of the home, the children are like the living stones of the family. And then he goes on to speak about the family as the domestic church. Now after this, he speaks of the importance of work, the need for tenderness and mutual relations and the relationship between the family, society, and the environment. He then concludes in that section. With the gaze of faith and love, grace and fidelity, we have contemplated the relationship between human families and the divine trinity. The word of God tells us that the family is entrusted to a man, a woman, and their children, so that they may become a communion of persons in the image of the union of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Begetting and raising children for its part mirrors God's creative work. At the very outset of Amoris Laetitia, then, Pope Francis emphasizes that we must begin from God and not from ourselves. This is, in fact, the approach taken by Jesus himself. Remember when the Pharisees raised that question to him of divorce and pointed out that Moses allowed the practice? How did our Lord respond? He objected that this represented an expedient made for human weakness. But for Jesus, excuse me, the question is not, what does the law permit? Rather, it is, what is the will of God? His answer is quite straightforward. Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. So let's start where the scripture verse that Jesus cites here is found, which is also where Pope Francis starts. That is at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the first account of creation. Genesis 1.27 presents the creation of the man and woman as the culmination of God's creative activity, making them in his image and likeness, male and female. The next chapter speaks of God creating the man first, then the rest of creation to be a suitable helpmate for him, none of which, though, meets the mark until he creates the woman from one of Adam's ribs while he is asleep. In that first encyclical of his, God is Love, Pope Benedict, with original insight, sees a connection here between monotheism and monogamy. And at the same time, he gives another original insight that really struck me, and still does, in reclaiming the love that is eros with the Christian meaning. He says, the idea is certainly present here that man is somehow incomplete, driven by nature to seek in another the part that can make him whole. The idea that only in communion with the opposite sex can he become complete. The biblical account thus concludes with a prophecy about Adam. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Two aspects of this are important. First, eros is somehow rooted in man's very nature. Adam is a seeker who abandons his mother and father in order to find woman. Only together do the two represent complete humanity, become and become one flesh. The second aspect is equally important. From the standpoint of creation, Eros directs man towards marriage, to a bond which is unique and definitive. Thus and only thus does it fulfill its deepest purpose. Corresponding to the image of a monotheistic God is monogamous marriage. 
Then he says, marriage based on exclusive and definitive love becomes the icon of the relationship between God and his people and vice versa. This passage of Genesis is critical because it sets the pattern for the whole rest of the Bible and for all that will later be revealed and indeed for all of salvation history. We can already see this in the next step through the Bible, the prophets. They frequently speak of Israel's, Israel's relationship to the Lord as a bride to her bridegroom, even to the point of accusing them of being an adulterous bride when they violate their covenant with the one true God by worshiping the false gods of their more powerful neighboring pagan nations. There's also a book of the Old Testament that is nothing but a collection of love poems, the Song of Songs. Why in the world would a collection of love poems be entered into the canon of scripture? Pope Benedict explains why also in God is love. He says, the reception of the Song of Songs in the canon of sacred scripture was soon explained by the idea that these love songs ultimately describe God's relation to man and man's relation to God. That's what the Song of Songs became, both in Christian and Jewish literature, a source of mystical knowledge and experience, an expression of the essence of biblical faith, that man can indeed enter into union with God, his primordial aspiration. But this union is a unity in which both God and man remain themselves and yet become fully one. As St. Paul says, he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Is this nothing other than the nuptial mystery? That is, the two becoming fully one, yet remaining themselves, each retaining their unique individual identity. Moving on to the New Testament, we have various sayings and parables of Jesus alluding to this imagery, such as the parable of the ten virgins, you know, the five wise and five foolish who took their lamps with them to go out and what? Meet the bridegroom. And of course, he chose the occasion of a marriage feast to perform his first miracle. And he responds to his mother, my hour has not come, as a reference to the consummation of God's marriage to his people that he would accomplish by his death on the cross. Now, truly pivotal passage is St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which uh, Dr. O'Donnell already uh, covered and stole some of my thunder here. But you all understand well how it explains the sacramental meaning of marriage and fulfills the prophecy from uh, Genesis. And he says the two becoming one flesh is a great mystery in reference to Christ and the church. And then finally, the book of Revelation. The culmination of all history at the end of times is revealed by what? The wedding feast of the Lamb. There we have marriage again. In relating his vision to us, St. John says, the wedding day of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who have been called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So it is that the Bible begins and ends with the marriage, Adam and Eve, and the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it is replete with this nuptial imagery all throughout. God's covenant with Israel is a marriage covenant. It is fulfilled in the blood of Christ on the cross, establishing a new and eternal covenant between him, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. In fact, we learn from the fathers of the church that God's creation of a bride for his son Adam from Adam's side as he slept was a foreshadowing of God the Father's creation of a bride, the church, for his only begotten son as he lay in the sleep of death on the cross. Christ gives the seed of life to his bride, the church, from the blood and water that flowed from his side. He is the bridegroom. 
The church, as bride and mother, receives that seed of life, and with it generates new life for his kingdom, the water of baptism, and nourishes that life through the grace of the sacraments, his blood, the Eucharist, and by teaching the truth that he has entrusted to the church, his bride. All of this, then, is the background in our Catholic teaching to Pope Francis's teaching in Amoris Laetitia on, as he says, the relationship between human families and the divine trinity. The fingerprints of marriage are everywhere, indeed, even on how the mystery of our eternal salvation is achieved. This is a consequence of the principle of human ecology, according to which all sectors of life are interconnected and which is at work more than ever in the area of marriage. Now, as you know, Pope Francis has made quite a name for himself in the area of ecology. And, uh, given his teaching and advocacy on behalf of the environment. But you know, he also has not been reticent to speak about the good of the complementarity of man and woman and the urgent need for societies to recognize this. Very importantly, he has highlighted the interconnection between the two on more than one occasion. Just listen to these words he spoke about three years ago in an address to the participants at the International Colloquium on the complementarity between man and woman sponsored by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in the Vatican. He said, the crisis of the family has produced a human ecological crisis. For social environments, like natural environments, need protection. Although humanity has come to understand the need to address the conditions that threaten our natural environment, we have been slow. We have been slow even in our culture, even in our Catholic culture. We have been slow to recognize that even our social environments are at risk. It is therefore essential that we foster a new human ecology and make it move forward. A new human ecology, that is fostering the understanding of how all of the different spheres of our existence are interrelated, the physical, the spiritual, the social, and so forth. This is a point we can immediately understand at the level of the physical environment. A river that's polluted in one country will be polluted in its neighboring country. The bad air quality in one city will affect the communities surrounding it. I grew up in the area between uh, Tijuana and Los Angeles, so I've seen some of these realities myself. And we can also understand its application to the economy. And if there could ever be any doubt, the global economic crisis that hit in 2008 has done away with those doubts. But it's a basic operating principle of all of life, and therefore one which applies at all other levels. At the level of physical health, where the various systems of the body are all interconnected, at the levels of spiritual and moral health, which in turn affect the quality of our human relationships and even our economic health. That is, all of these different levels or areas or sectors of life are furthermore interconnected among themselves. Thus, the results of these studies about the effect of marriage uh, and the breakdown of marriage affecting all kinds of social problems we're having. And so in his very encyclical on the environment, Laudato Si, Pope Francis can be so bold as to say the following. Learning to accept our body, to care for it and respect its fullest meaning is an essential element of any genuine human ecology. Also valuing one's own body in its femininity or masculinity is necessary if I'm going to be able to recognize myself in an encounter with someone who is different. In this way, we can joyfully accept the specific gifts of another man or woman, the work of God the Creator, and find mutual enrichment. 
It is not a healthy attitude which would seek to cancel out sexual difference because it no longer knows how to confront it. A little before this, Pope Francis references Pope Benedict XVI, who teaches at length on the principle of human ecology in his encyclical on Catholic social teaching, Caritas in Veritate. This is Francis's sort of footnote to Benedict, who opened up, opened up this insight uh, for us and for future generations. Francis cites Benedict's teaching that there is a relationship between human life and moral law which is necessary to respect for a dignified environment. Quoting Benedict, he says, man too has a nature that he must respect and that he cannot manipulate at will. Attempting to do so is another symptom of the social schizophrenia we are witnessing today, where the human person is seen not as an integrated whole, sort of compartmentalized in silos, the spiritual over, over here, the moral over there, having nothing to do with it, or the attitude that private is private and public is public, or I have this kind of belief for my life, but it doesn't affect my duty in the public life, as I'm sure you've heard, or the very popular and acceptable attitude, which I'm sure you've heard today, which says, I'm spiritual, but not religious. It's kind of this compartmentalizing of our human person, but we're an integrated whole. Pope Benedict says in Caritas in Veritate, the book of nature is one and indivisible. It takes in not only the environment, but also life, sexuality, marriage, the family, social relations, in a word, integral human development. Our duty towards the environment are linked to our duties towards the human person, considered in himself and in relation to others. It would be wrong to uphold one set of duties while trampling on the other. Herein lies a grave contradiction in our mentality and practice today, one which demeans the person, disrupts the environment, and damages society. All of this comes about from a fundamental misunderstanding of the human person, basically what a human being is. Philosophers would call it an anthropological error. Pope Francis refers to it as a misguided anthro anthropocentism. That is, man puts himself at the center and pushes God to the margins, so out of sight, out of mind. Earlier on in Laudato Si, Pope Francis warns that this misguided anthropocentrism leads to a misguided lifestyle. He says, when human beings place themselves at the center, they give absolute priority to immediate convenience and all else becomes relative. Hence, we should not be surprised to find, in conjunction with the omnipresent technocratic paradigm and the cult of unlimited human power, the rise of a relativism, which sees everything as irrelevant unless it serves one's own immediate interests. There is a logic in all this, whereby different attitudes can feed on one another, leading to environmental degradation and social decay. Pope Benedict entitled his encyclical on Catholic social teaching, Caritas in Veritate, speaking and doing the truth in love. All of this that I've said here highlights why. There is a lot of truth we need to speak these days, but must always do so out of love. Truth and love are the solid foundation of any healthy and flourishing society. I was edified some years ago by a group of young people at a large working-class Hispanic parish in our archdiocese to which I had gone to celebrate the sacrament of confirmation for them. At the ceremony, two of the young people shared some reflections on what their confirmation meant to them. They said 
their confirmation gave them the grace to go forth and build a civilization of truth and love. I could not have said it better myself. Caritas in veritate, the foundation of civilization. Both are necessary, both together, if we wish to have a flourishing society, both truth and love. How can we speak the truth in love to our world? This is simply another way of asking how we can evangelize. An insight by Pope Paul VI uh, offers sound guidance. In his apostolic exhortation on evangelization, Evangelii Nunciandi, he writes the following. It is appropriate to emphasize the following point. For the church, the first means of evangelization is the witness of an authentically Christian life, given over to God in a communion that nothing should destroy, and at the same time given to one's neighbor with limitless zeal. As we said recently to a group of lay people, Modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers, and if he does listen to teachers, it is because they are witnesses. St. Peter expressed this well when he held up the example of a reverent and chaste life that wins over, even without a word, those who refuse to obey the word. It is therefore primarily by her conduct and by her life that the church will evangelize the world. In other words, by her living witness of fidelity to the Lord Jesus the witness of poverty and detachment, of freedom in the face of the powers of this world. In short, the witness of sanctity. The witness of sanctity, that is our most persuasive argument. The first believers lived in a society whose moral value stood in stark contrast to the truly free love of Christian discipleship. They were often dismissed with a sneer, smacking with an air of superiority, or worst, imprisoned or put to death, because their way of life was an affront to those around them. But even those who despised them admired them. In the third century, Tertullian averred that even our enemies pay, paid us this compliment. This great apologist described how Christian community used their resources. He said, not for banquets or drinking parties, but for the support and burial of the poor, for children who are without parents and means of subsistence, for aged men who are confined to the house, likewise for shipwrecked sailors, and for any in the mines or on islands or in prisons. Provided only it be for the sake of fellowship with God, they become entitled to loving and protective care for their confession. The practice of such a special love brands us in the eyes of some. See, they say, how they love one another. See how ready they are to die for each other. This is the legacy we have received from our ancestors in the faith. Those first generation of Christians in the city of Rome were so often scapegoated by the powerful pagan Roman government. But when a plague would strike the city and the well-to-do would flee to the hills for safety until the plague subsided, it was the Christians who stayed behind to care, behind to care for the sick and at great risk to their own health and very lives. And not just the Christian sick, all the sick, regardless of religion, of how they lived their lives, or even what they thought of the Christians themselves. The historian Eusebius noted about the Christians of his time, all day long some of them tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. Likewise, the Emperor Julian complained to one of his pagan priests, 
They support not only their poor, but ours as well. What the saints offer us is not a brief summer of love, but a perpetual springtime of love that is constantly refreshed by divine love. This is where the lasting joy of love is to be found. It is this kind of love and compassion and service to the truth, especially the truth of the human person, that has marked the lives of the holy ones who are our predecessors in the faith. Hospitals, orphanages, schools, outreach to the poor and destitute, giving without concern for getting anything in return, seeing in each human being, especially in the poor and destitute, a priceless child beloved by God, whom God calls to turn away from sin and toward him, so that they might be saved. This is the courageous witness we are called to today, especially in the area of marriage. Marriage is supposed to help a society learn the real lesson of free love, learning the lesson to be selfless, living for the other, not for oneself. As St. John Paul II said so famously in his own encyclical on marriage and the family, Familiaris Consortio, the future of the world and of the church passes through the family. That is to say, the way of civilization passes through marriage. But so does our work of evangelization. Better yet, the work of evangelization is precisely the work of building a truly human civilization that is one based on the truth of the human person and God's plan for our flourishing, both as individuals and as a society, and indeed, his plan for our eternal salvation. Marriage is absolutely indispensable to this project in every way. It was through monogamous, lifelong, faithful marriage that the church was able to Christianize a pagan world and call it to a higher or more noble, that is to say, truly human civilization. Indeed, when you consider that the entire Judeo-Christian religious tradition is premised on the concept of sexual difference and complementarity in marriage, then it becomes clear that if we lose that concept, nothing of our faith tradition will make any sense in the culture. Precisely because revealed truth is not superimposed on nature, but builds on it. That is, builds upon truths that are accessible to reason alone from observations of nature. When the culture can no longer apprehend those natural truths, then the very foundation of our teaching evaporates, and nothing we have to offer will make sense. This is yet another principle of human ecology. Natural truths and revealed truths are interconnected. It's not like they're in separate silos and revealed truths, what we know from faith and church's tradition, God is revealed through the source of revelation is kind of off in its own, completely disconnected from what God reveals to us in the created order. They are interconnected. God's plan for creating the human person, male and female, is a demanding but beautiful thing. To then evangelize in our time, to build a healthy and flourishing society for one and all, it is to rebuild a marriage culture. Yes, it is demanding, but it is also beautiful. And it's something we accept and cherish to our benefit or reject and ignore to our demise. But let us not be careful to make the same anthropological error and put ourselves at the center and push God to the margin. It is God who does the building. As Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord build a house, 
They labor in vain who build. Unless the Lord guard the city, in vain does the guard keep watch. The work of civilization building, or I suppose you could say kingdom building, to put it in the more common parlance, it's really the Lord's doing, not ours. If it were ours, then we could change it. It would give us control over the project. Thus, we would be back with our, uh, our predecessors, the ancient Israelites, who made the molten calf and worshiped the work of their own hands in the Sinai Desert. Just as they felt the tug back to paganism out of which the Lord had called them and all through their history in biblical times, so do we feel the tug of the neo-paganism of our own time. So we need to make sure that we have that right from the start. God does the building. We are just his day laborers. Love is the answer. Free love, actually, properly understood. But love in the truth. And the truth doesn't change. Laws might change, but truth doesn't. If the law does not correspond to our nature, such that there is a conflict between the law and nature, guess which will prevail? And so it is no surprise that, yes, we do have a lot to fix in our society. A society of justice, peace, and prosperity for all. These are the fruits of a society with a strong culture of marriage and the family. This noble cause is a call to love that we cannot abandon, that we will not give up on, and that in the end we know will triumph. So let us steel ourselves, with the help of God's grace, to bear witness to the truth in love. For the truth spoken in love has a power over the human heart. The truth lived in love has an even greater power over the human heart, the power of attraction. Let us then pick up the torch and pass on to a new generation the truth about marriage, not just the abstract truth, but the lived reality that makes a difference in our lives and in the lives of those around us, friend and foe alike. Let us take heart from the legacy that we have received. Let us place our trust in God, and let us go forth to be God's workers in building a civilization of truth and love.